0: Welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The ensuing show will change, transform,
1: and otherwise alter you. Good luck. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you.
2: constant listeners, and welcome yet again to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is rockin' Randall Colburn, and I'm locked and loaded in my lakeside cabin, Randy laughs for an episode about 1998's Bag of Bones, an odd and for some seminal work in the King canon. Uh, Today... Me and my fine panel of shrouded things will discuss century-long curses, publishing scandals, and one aging rich dude's obsession with women and a woman half his age. Let's meet our panel, Mel... Say hello to everyone and tell us, what is your history with Bag of Bones?
1: Hi, this is Mel, something loud and nasty by Guns N' Roses, Castle, (laughs) and uh, I don't have any history with Bag of Bones. I actually didn't even know that it was a novel. I assumed that it was a memoir, and I think I assumed that because we used to do those FAQ sections where where listeners would ask us questions and we called it Bag of Bones. Like I just thought that it related to a non-fictional King property, (laughs) Um, but no, it's a novel Uh, there is a literal bag of bones and there are metaphorical bags of bones in it. And I knew absolutely nothing about it going in other than it was about a writer. That's the only thing I knew. So I was excited to read it.
2: Very cool. Dan, say hello. And what is your history with Bag of Bones? Uh, This is Dan. I'm just a little guy, Fleeger.
3: So as I was saying before the call, uh, I had read this before and I totally forgotten about it. But as I was reading, I was like, wait, wait, wait. No, I know this. So I found I had actually put a newspaper clipping from the now defunct Spanish language daily newspaper, Oi, that used to come out in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it was on John Wayne Gacy. And I just um. thought it was funny that it was in Spanish about John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> so it showing had the us date. a photo, yeah. Yeah, um, for the readers at Home. We'll put it on the Discord. Uh, yeah, just, so it's August 2011. And that's how I became familiar with that, yes, I have
2: in fact read this. All systems are go. <laughs> and you've also watched a little bit of the uh, miniseries, which we'll be covering next.
3: Yeah, I'm excited to cover Ooh. that. Um, I did not even know it was a miniseries until I saw the uh, assignment. So, <laughs> so you
1: so you forgot everything about it between I, the first time you read it. And I normally am like
3: I have a very good memory normally, but it was right after I like was moving to sc- here. I just finished grad school. It was just a very chaotic time, mm-hmm. and I think I was living on people's couches. Mm-hmm. So I just I kind of like lost it. Blanked it out of my memory, but it came back. Thank God.
2: Cool. Um, Anna, say hello. And what is your history with Bag of Bones or Bag of Bones? I kind of want to just make it one word, Bag of Bones.
0: (gasps) Hi, uh, I am Anna Marie uh, Meloril Cox. (laughs) And my history with Bag of Bones is that um, I also kind of forgot about, I mean, I knew that I read it. I remembered Mm -hmm. the general outline of there being, for some reason, blues singers in 1901. One mm-hmm. in Maine, <laughs> like which is problematic in and of itself, perhaps. Uh, and I remember it was about a writer. Um, I think I just blocked out the whole problematic teen mom stuff. Sure. And it's funny. I know we'll talk more about this. I did remember vaguely liking it, and I will say it is not badly written. That right. is all to say in defense of this book. It is. Yeah. It is no dream catcher.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Man, which again, I can't is wait.
0: Can't like wait for outside fave of mine, but yeah. I also can't wait for dream. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, yeah. This one, I remember very vividly buying it because uh, it was 1998. I was working at Eddie Bauer in the lakeside mall. And uh, uh, I remember just walk. I had no idea this book was coming out. And um, I walked by Walden books and saw this huge Stephen King display and like rushed in and bought it. I was so excited. Um, and I remember not really connecting with it when I read it. And like, Like you, Dan, I just I didn't forget that I read it, but this is one of the few Stephen King books I never reread because it just didn't really appeal to me. Although I do remember like it was like I didn't remember like Maddie at all. I didn't remember like a lot of certain plot lines, but I did remember uh, like Max DeVore and Rogette, like because they were just like very striking sort of sinister Uh, mustache twirling villains and um, I always like those in King's works and I'll I'll talk more about Max and how much I enjoy him uh, (laughs) later so uh, cool and then yeah what I read it on Kindle but you guys it looks like you all were reading the first edition uh, with the screaming woman on the cover
3: yes I have the hardcover screaming woman um, but I also did some of the audiobook so like when I go on the train I'll knock a chapter or two off
2: yeah and the audiobook
3: came with a 35 minute interview with King after because he read the story yeah
2: Absolutely. i've got some i've got some quotes from that that we'll discuss uh anna what version do you have it looks this like this is got a actually paperback. a
0: new mass market paperback
2: oh nice same oh. cover yeah. yeah and uh yeah mel you were you were trashing the cover before we started i'm gonna
1: call you out this is a well i have the 2008 gallery books paperback um yeah it's a terrible cover yeah there's a, this like photoshopped <laughs> house on the lake with like the, <laughs> the like equally wavering reflection that's just like so computerized and then this like vague screaming woman who i don't know who it's supposed to be we were theorizing maybe sarah um the the, the
0: kind of kente cloth
1: yeah, I, That's why I, I think, think it's Sarah. supposed
0: to be a, a, a Sarah, but she's not described as wearing anything like this. Yeah, in the book. So this looks like something that a student of graphic design would would make in <laughs> like high
2: school.
1: It's really bad.
2: Yeah, that was the version I had. Um, that was the first edition, and I've never seen other artwork for this book. That's the only artwork I've ever seen for it. So somebody really likes it. Um, but I'm also not an edition hound, so uh, listeners, please correct us uh, in the Discord or elsewhere. Um, yeah, this book, for me though, I remember always thinking that it was more literary than some of his other books. But uh, as we'll discuss, that that is that was kind of by design <laughs> by the publisher. Uh, yeah, let's hop in. Let's talk about the history of this book because it kind of has a a, wi- a long and winding history of its own. Well, Mike Allen, if you see, excuse me, sir.
3: Do you have Prince Albert, in a can? You do. Well, you better let the poor guy out. Yeah, my darling, that I had to go,
2: that <laughs> I had to get cleaned up. Tell him, tell him, tell him I'll see him tonight. Get up, let's do
0: Get up, get up, watch
2: me now. It was published by Scribner on September 22nd, 1998. This was the day after Stephen King's 51st birthday. Uh, and I think the fact that he turned 50, uh, you know, around the process of writing this, um, there's some quotes that kind of lend credence to this as well, that it was something of a seminal book for King in that regard. I think he, he in some ways, perhaps saw this as a as a midlife crisis book to some degree, Um But yeah, it debuted on the number one, number one on the New York Times bestseller list, went on to win many awards, the 1999 Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel, the 1999 British Fantasy Award for Best Novel, and the 1999 Locus Award for Best Dark Fantasy slash Horror Novel. Uh, It was King's first novel with Scribner, which he joined after an acrimonious split with Viking, with whom he'd been working since early in his career. And this was something of a scandal in literary circles. Uh, Rumor has it King was miffed that his contract was not as lucrative as that of Tom Clancy's and he filled bag of bones with toothy references to real life publishing figures including Phyllis Grant who uh, had taken over as president of Penguin Putnam, which was Viking's parent company. And her when she arrived, she brought Clancy with her, uh, Tom Clancy, so uh, under the same umbrella as King. And King was not happy about this. Uh, what resulted was uh, described by the New Yorker as a quote-unquote unhappy stalemate. And in a move that was destined to court media scrutiny, King's agent lawyer put out a letter to several publishers saying the author was on the market and looking for an $18 million advance in addition to royalties uh, for his next book. And this made for something of a backlash against King. Uh, many reports were calling him venal, past his prime. And as uh, as these negotiations unfolded, he went off to Australia for a cross-country motorcycle trip, uh, getting off the grid.
1: Eight, $18 million. <laughs> yeah. like, I, I've decided the net worth of my next book. And well, I believe Tom Clancy
2: was getting around 20 million advances somewhere around there. And I think King uh, and I have some quotes here to, you know, add some shape to this. But, yeah, I think King really didn't want to be in Tom Clancy's shadow. He wanted to be a big boy, too. Uh, I was saying, and, it is
3: it is funny how it pops in, though, like the negotiating for book renewal in the very beginning of this book. It's, oh, it's, yeah. It's very much right so, about it, what you know.
0: <laughs> I think this a whole book. I mean, spoiler alert, my my theory about this book is it's actually about um writer ego
2: yeah
3: absolutely
0: it's male gaze or, or kind of male creation mm-hmm. really and how men cre- are the ones who create things they're the doers and the makers and um the absorption that that creates like the self-absorption the complete self-absorption that i think king thinks is about writing like mm-hmm. he thinks that writing is an act of self-absorption i think being a man a white man <laughs> yeah is perhaps and a, the thing he's really kind of writing about in some ways. Yeah, and
2: I have a quote from him that I think uh, speaks to what you're saying. On, I'll read shortly. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of context here. King's sales were definitely declining uh, throughout the 90s. Uh, his books were still bestsellers, but they were spending less and less time on you know the bestseller lists. He used to sort of dominate them for uh, you know months and months and months, and now the books were you know just not staying there as longer. Whereas Clancy, uh, his numbers uh, were much, much higher uh, than King's and were remaining higher. And that really seemed to trigger competitiveness in King. Uh, He said, this is psychological, he told the New York Times uh, roughly a month after the release of Bag of Bones. He said, I would like to sell. I wanted to have one more book that was big, that felt like I was running the tables in terms of sales. I wanted to knock Tom Clancy out of the number one spot. Like Leonardo DiCaprio, I'm king of the world, even if it's only for two weeks, whatever. I wanted those things. Uh, Titanic reference, that movie was new then. Um, So very. it was a relevant. Petty.
1: And this is such a petty book. It's just like juvenile. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree, Mel. And I think that and I, I think the thing is King acknowledges that pettiness to some degree, but just like the idea that it got to this point, like this whole con- like this whole concept of asking for $18 million, which just seems silly. Um, but yeah, he acknowledged in multiple interviews, sort of in the aftermath of all of this, and I'll talk about how he ended up with Scribner in a moment, but he said with uh, The New Yorker and Salon in two different interviews, he said it was a bad move to ask for such an audacious advance. And he revised his position to state that there's no reason a writer of his popularity and wealth needs an advance. He's talked, a lot about how advances are for struggling writers who you know need to pay the rent, which I think was also a subtle dig at Clancy, who was still taking his advances. Um, so he's like, I'm, I'm more enlightened than him now. Uh, regardless, he ended up with a lucrative deal at Scribner. Uh, he remains with them to this day. Of his time at Viking, he said, and this is, I think, what speaks to what you're saying, Anna. Uh, I felt like the little housewife who stays home and works all day while my husband is out taking all the credit and sporting around town in his nice tailored suit. And I felt that I wasn't being respected and I was being taken for granted. Um, so that's sort of he characterizes himself as the housewife there, which I think is is interesting. And Viking um,
0: is the husband that's and taking all the credit.
2: Yeah, I guess. Yeah.
0: This also reminds me in some ways like this is like a prequel to Lisey's story. Yeah. Um, ha- I have some of the same problems with it that I had with Lisey's story.
2: Yeah, it's you know. interesting that th- those books sort of bumped up against each other in our coverage, which yeah. is you know totally coincidental. But yeah, there definitely is a lot of DNA between these two books uh, shared. I have
0: so many questions for Tabby. I really do.
2: <laughs> I know, right? Like, um, uh, <laughs> Chuck- just sit
0: down, just just sit down with her, just girls sometime, mm-hmm. and like, yeah, I have questions.
2: Let's I talk. Really Let's hash it out. Yeah. Chuck Verrill, his longtime editor, said of the negotiations, "I think the fact that he loves this book." had a great deal to do with the failure of negotiations. He finished the book as he turned 50. Um, I think that psychologically, he was offered a little bit less for a novel that he loved so dearly. And at this point in his career, it came as kind of a wound or blow. Money was the language. Money was the gesture. And the gesture came as a blow um and here's how king phrased it to time in 2009 which was uh, 11 years 12 years after the negotiations i was squeezed out at viking because phyllis grand came from putnam and she brought with her tom clancy who sold more books than i did there was a feeling at viking that they couldn't support two big money writers and i was the one that went uh in terms of profits and loss that made sense although clancy's kind of dropped out of sight <laughs> But the people I still deal with at Scribner were people who were interested in the book rather than the reputation of the writer, which was a penny dreadful reputation at that point. I give them a lot of credit. To some degree, they rehabilitated my reputation. And yeah, it's kind of wild that that was, I think there's, and I'm going to, discuss it shortly but um the idea that his reputation was that of a of a penny dreadful horror writer is interesting because the 90s was when he was branching out i mean he was writing uh dolores claiborne he was writing rose matter these books that um and gerald's game like uh and even insomnia like these are books that really aren't strictly horror in the way that a lot of his early stuff is and I, i
3: i would compare it to just on that like it's almost like an aging like director or actor or Athlete who people are saying, you know, oh, their best days are behind him and mm-hmm. they're just so desperate to go out there and win one more championship. Yeah. You can really see it and even in him kind of dismissing, like, oh well, Tom Clancy's not really here anymore. It's all this little Yeah subtle passive aggressiveness that's coming out. And, you know, no one feels bad for a rich person complaining about money. You can tell <laughs> he's he's a little bit, he can sense he needs to be a little bit modest, but it's like, oh, you know, I just want to get paid what I'm worth but it's like all right
0: yeah
2: so I think 000. he's also reckoning with his wealth in this book too um there's yes. a lot of discussion about money oh. and and things of that God, nature, the yeah. classism
0: though I mean yeah. it's, breathtaking. it's heavy <laughs> taking it, it I I had to throw the book across the room I mean like the 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 scene I know we need to get to step but the scene where he meets Maddie it's ho- it's horrible it's yeah. just like shut your fucking mouth my friend <laughs>
2: i know i like, think i I think it, i sent that i screenshot of that and sent it to somebody because it's, like,
0: it's like vulgar and demeaning and right. ugh, and it never stops it never stops
1: by yeah, the way <laughs> i agree
0: uh it's funny to me that
1: he thought that changing the writing would be the way to garner literary accolades like to me it seems that the marketing is always the problem right you'd think he would know that his earlier books aren't even penny dreadfuls like we talk a lot about how Cujo is like actually this very bleak meditation on grief and family and all this Mm -hmm. shit and like it's funny to me that he thinks that (laughs) writing something more gothic or more quote-unquote literary is going to be what what salvages his reputation but like look right. at the fucking cover of this book like it wasn't marketed <laughs>
0: yeah
1: it was marketed as a scary ghost story by Stephen well, king like it was so we'll talk
2: about that it it was and it wasn't like it, it a lot of it had to do with the language like i think i agree with you about the artwork but um we'll talk about the press releases that accompanied the book well, shortly
0: we've talked also before like he seems still i mean if we can hi steve if you're listening <laughs> t- har- sorry about the armchair uh, theorizing here but um like so so fundamentally insecure in some level like mm-hmm. it just never goes away like this idea that a real writer is something else than what he does
2: Mm-hmm. yeah you know it's like yeah.
0: scattered throughout his books that well and i that, think some
2: yeah i think well, some of that is due to the fact that you know people did especially around this time there was a lot of uh you know people like harold bloom the great you know, literary critic was always very much just like the, like Stephen King is what's wrong with, with like, you know, modern books and everything. And there were a lot of people that did downgrade him. And I think some of that had to do with, uh, the media that like the, the movies and TV shows and miniseries that kind of were popular during the nineties. Um, you know, misery came out and, uh, and what was the other big one? Well, Dolores Claiborne, like those movies came out and those were, you know, Oh, Shawshank Redemption. And, uh, those were these, you know, beautiful celebrated movies, but his name wasn't prominently featured, on on those whereas you know when they were making the stand and the tommy knockers on on miniseries stephen king's name was frontlined um and so i think and even sleepwalkers which was a movie he wrote the script for that you know everyone (laughs) fucking hates uh although it is a lot of fun um but yeah it's like that was kind of i think the reputation um at that time because most people i think garner their opinions um you know about certain I think like creative types a lot of it you know movies and tv shows and stuff like that are more front and center than books themselves so yeah and I,
3: I think especially too with the switching from Viking to Schribner, like that's very inside baseball most people mm-hmm. don't know who publishes the books right right like it was big news when Christopher Nolan left whatever Warner it, who know you know the average movie fan doesn't care about that stuff and I don't think the average book reader, I mean, maybe the people listen to the show, people who host it, because we get really into that stuff, but not as not everyone, not the average consumer is getting that far into the weeds of like, oh, he just switched publishers. Maybe I should give him another try.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and I also think it's sort of just on the um, self-confidence thing that I think is, is interesting is that, you know, On Writing is such a beautiful, inspiring book to me. Mm-hmm. And in part, because it is about like, love your writing no matter what. Yeah, Like you are a writer if you write and claim that for yourself, you know, and and it's about how it a lot of it's about how don't care what, you know, you sh- fuck everyone else. Mm-hmm. Like you should just write if you want to write. And it, if it's bad, it's bad. And then you fix it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that somehow I, and yet somehow in his books, there's this little creep of like. But what a real writer is, is something that I'm not. I was going to ask when he started publishing in The New Yorker. Like
2: yeah, that's a that good, seemed uh, to have helped him. Yeah. <laughs> in way.
0: Yeah. And and you
2: know, I think It with, was around uh, this time
0: though, right? Like it was the mid nineties. Um, I would assume so. I haven't actually looked into it. Because I sort of remember when I was like my my senior year in college, like getting a New Yorker it was a like, big deal like Stephen King's in the New Yorker.
2: Yeah. That's cool. So again. Um yeah, so uh, I guess just like uh, rounding out the reputation discussion, uh, the Times did report in 1998 that there were focus groups around King and why his readership was dropping, and it's be and then. Uh, King himself said that the results indicated that it was uh, women who weren't really reading him anymore because they thought he wrote nothing but horror. Uh, He said, it was clear that a lot of people who had fallen away were women, Mr. King said of the search results, uh, which he added did not affect the book's editing. Um, He said, a lot of them felt that I was writing strictly horror stories and I knew that wasn't true. And I've always been a little shy about saying, now, wait a minute, I'm a lot more than just a horror writer because it sounds so conceited. Um, And then, yeah, but I do think again, like, a lot of it has to do with how he's being portrayed in Hollywood and on TV. I think a lot of that contributed to that. But,
3: but so can the I, can market, I say
2: yeah. Go one ahead. One pet peeve, really quick. Sorry on that.
3: Uh, having focus groups because, like, I used to work in management consulting, and a lot of those are they already know what they want to do. Right. So you'll conduct all these research and give them all this data, and it's like,
0: well, I'm not going to let this
3: affect my decision anyway. And you're like, well, okay, great. <laughs> so it's like you know, all these focus groups, and he's like, I'm not going to change the editing, so it doesn't matter. It's like,
2: okay, yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, and the thing about Scribner too is that, like you, you sort of hinted at this, um, Dan. Scribner, you know, has a reputation for having published like Severnus Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, other, you know, you know, notably American literary writers, people who kind of form the American canon, and um, so that was a that was, I think, intentional. Uh, on a lot of people's parts, and the marketing push too, like um, press materials, at least that that came out with the book, uh, really played down the horror elements, and they played up his literary bona fides, including having won the O. Henry Award. He was described as the O. Henry Award-winning author, and the romantic parts of the plot. In numerous interviews, uh, King called it a gothic romance, a grown-up romance, and a haunted love story. Uh, Scribner, known for uh, I already said that, is credited by many as being responsible for King being reevaluated as a literary writer rather than just a horror writer
1: um and this yeah this book is pulpy as fuck like I, know. I, I do not think this book is quote unquote more literary than his other books
0: and is this if this is a book that's designed to appeal to women like...
1: yeah just really <laughs> miss that mark
2: as well yeah which is really funny and i think that's why they're the
0: rape scene do you think that's the one that's the part they're like chicks dig this (laughs)
2: but I think putting that woman on the cover though Mel does speak to the idea that they were trying somewhat to appeal to that female audience um uh I would have rather seen Mike you know uh standing around in his underwear or something in the woods uh that would have been cool I'm just kidding he's a
0: rather
1: gender-neutral figure to me also like it
0: doesn't perhaps with his ridiculous hard-on
2: yeah his uh, his big swinging dick his
0: enormous his enormous enormous
2: dong um cool uh yeah, okay. Um yeah, and the 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 marketing push was huge for this book. Um, It was the only book Scribner released in September of 1998 and uh, began with a 9,000 advanced reader's copies that came with an audio cassette. A lot of them were distributed to bookstore workers, I read. Uh, They really wanted sort of, um, you know, readers to uh, spread the word of mouth buzz before the book officially came out. It also came with an audio cassette that included a half hour King monologue and his reading of a chapter excerpt. Uh, And there were also like promotional fridge magnets and crossword puzzles and all kinds of wild stuff. So they really, really went all out with this. And, you know, King obviously is very happy. And he was very happy in the interviews I read with being with Scribner, and he's still with them to this day. Uh, you know, he'll he'll publish some stuff with others, like, uh, you know, his crime books. But, but, you know, Billy Summers was a Scribner book. And, um, yeah, he's sticking with them. And then, yeah, I have some quotes here uh, that King has, you know, things King has said about Bag of Bones in various interviews. And that's the thing is, you know, when we did... A uh, Wizard and Glass. Dan recently, there was it was really hard to find interviews or him talking about that book um, because I think that was one for the readers. It was for the constant readers, and um, I don't think it was being pushed very hard by Viking. Maybe that was something that pissed him off about working there. But you know, it was the fourth book in a long series, and he really didn't do a lot of press around it at all. It was like hard it's, to find interviews.
3: You know, what's interesting too, because it really is kind of the dawn of the home internet use. You know, because mm-hmm. I feel like it was mid to late 90s is when there was sort of that sea change toward the average person getting a computer and getting an AOL yeah. disc. So maybe it was good timing for him to switch over at this point just because things were changing. But when you said to who, you know, Scribner had published in the past, I think it's like I keep using sports analogies, but it's like a player going to play for the Lakers or the Yankees. We are like, wow, that they had so many good players come through those doors. So now that they're publishing me, I'm up there with Hemingway and the greats, you know? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. But yeah, there's a, a lot of interviews with King during this time. He really made the rounds. And um, and yeah, some of the interviews are really interesting. We'll talk about them. But he uh, he's described the book in several different things as the difference between what appears and what really is. He also calls it A novel and a half because it's a gothic and it's got buckets of plot. I think that is accurate. Uh, One report (laughs) I read in the New York Times from 1997, uh, a year before the book was released, said the original draft was 1,000 pages. Um, The one we ended up with is about 550 or thereabouts. And it should have
1: been about 300.
2: (laughs) I know. I agree. (laughs) Um, He was highly inspired by Daphne (laughs) de Marier's Rebecca. He talked about this in many interviews. Um, He says, when I sat down to write bag of bones, I began by thinking about Rebecca, which is the great model. Gothic, and it's a story about secrets, but it's also a story about how we make assumptions based on what we see in the world. And a lot of times those assumptions are very wrong. We look at people and we assume things based on their looks. The basis of the Gothic are secrets that are kept uh, combined with appearances that deceive. So I felt immediately right at home because I've grown up in a lot of small Maine communities and we love it when the Flatlanders come. In the summertime, most of Massachusetts is in Maine, but the tourists who come see one aspect of Maine. Uh, They see vacation land, but people who are there all the time know where the bodies are buried that's a lot of what bag of bones is about where the bodies are buried and who's in the bag that was probably the best quote i read um, from king about what this book is really trying to do that was in that audiobook interview that you mentioned uh dan which was probably yeah. the best interview i heard although he says some really that's where some of the most wild quotes about maddie yeah. come from which we'll talk about in heroes and after, after
3: six days of reading um, but and also so on rebecca the, the character that's like the rich husband is max de winter yeah so max devore and this yeah. is kind of a shout out to that
2: yeah, that movie was just remade on Netflix with Army Hammer and uh, and Uh-oh. somebody else. Yeah, directed by Ben <laughs> known, Wheatley. Known cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> I know, known cannibal Army Hammer. Uh, yeah, that that. And the thing is, there's already a great adaptation of that of that book um, from the 70s, I believe. So it was kind of weird that they remade that, and it did not get good reviews at all. But... Really,
1: didn't really make a a splash either. Yeah. I totally forgot that that
0: happened. <laughs> so I know. I, the it only just... like, reason that I... happened during COVID, though, too, right? Yeah. So like
2: it was a COVID release. I only remember it because I was doing entertainment news at that time. So it was it was everywhere for like a week, and then nobody talked about it. And then obviously with the Army Hammer stuff, it's like, okay, he didn't exist. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, okay. And then he also did an interview with Amazon.com, which is kind of neat. Like, this feels like it was the early days of Amazon and they were starting to get into some media. Like, they had interviews and stuff like that. And King, I think, was very interested in the idea of online books and everything. He would go on to uh, be the first person to, I believe, release an ebook with uh, Riding the Bullet, which we'll get to in probably next year sometime. Um, and that whole experiment, which was also happened alongside The Plant, where he was trying to basically himself sell a book online. Um, well, I cannot just dis- wait to discuss that because I was I was in the thick of it back then. Um he says there's a sadness in this book, a sadness and a feeling of things passing. Uh that sort of melancholy yearning. It's very hard to talk about subjects like romance and lost love in an interview. It is a romance, and I hope that will fill you up emotionally. He said that to Amazon.com. And he did talk a lot about the romantic angles in this book, uh, which I think was probably a mandate from Scribner. They were trying to get him to talk about that stuff, but man, I gotta be honest, didn't not give a fuck about any relationship in this book <laughs> Um which also, holds... I
1: don't think I'd use the word romance to characterize his I know exactly. Yeah. Even like, his wife. Even I mean, his even his wife.
2: I agree. So, okay. Uh a lot of differing accounts about where the story uh the idea of the story came from. He told the BBC that he doesn't remember how it started, but that's the Sarah tilwell storyline was inspired by the story of a black singer who got into a car accident and died in a hospital after she was ignored and white patients were treated before her. He said it was Billie Holiday in the interview, but I race, I don't know much about Billie Holiday, but I researched her death and she did die uh, due to negligent care in a hospital that was uh, rooted in racism, but it, she was, um, she had like, I believe cirrhosis and, um, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with the car accident. Um, she was, you know, a heavy drinker and, uh, Uh, I had stuff to do with that, but you know, it's like her life was, was, from what I was reading, was very much um, ruined by uh, a lot of, you know, racially motivated uh, investigations into her. Um, in an interview following the audiobook, he said the idea hit him when he was working out at the YMCA. It, bega- <laughs> it began just with... pumping and then... Yeah. Again- <laughs> he says that at one point, he's like, yeah, I was like, you know, I was on the bench press and Maybe just- <laughs>
0: spotting a woman and yeah. how kind of sexual that is.
2: Someone 13 years younger than him. Uh, but yeah, um... Uh, he was working out It began with the idea Of one of he and Tabby's Houses being haunted uh, And then he kind of And then it's funny though Because in that interview It was really banal uh, And we talked about this With Billy Summers In our Billy Summers episode About how When people do at, try to Like ask him Where did this book come from It's it's always the most boring answer Because he's just a pretty Workman-like author He's like he, You know with Billy Summers He was like Well you know I had this image Of uh, being in like A basement apartment And the feet walking by uh, The window And then I was like That's neat And then he's like Why is this guy In a basement apartment Why is he looking at these feet and then he's like, and then I had my book, and it's like, okay, cool. Uh, that's a horrible story. And then uh, the same with this. He's he started talking about, oh, it's like him and Tabby's house being haunted. He's like, cool. And then he's like, well, why would the house be haunted? Well, maybe the ghost wanted revenge against whoever it was that killed her. There's my book. Um, so it's funny
0: because the description of the creative process in the book is right. actually some of the better writing. Yeah,
2: yeah, I agree. And like, the I'm men, sure the men in and the it's basement more interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I the men in the like basement
2: that. stuff is cool. And that actually, to me uh speaks a lot to my process as well because and like and I I cut some stuff because he was also talking a lot about writing in these interviews and one of the things he said was he's like the more I think about writing the worse my writing is and and the more he's like I don't really have writer's block but he's like the closest I've come to writer's block is is when I was teaching because he's like I was I was consumed all day in the process of teaching writing and and the theory behind writing that um you know I wasn't doing it and so he's like for him it's really about just doing the work um He told Charlie Rose, I wanted to write something that really was romantic, a grown-up romance. I chose a writer. I wanted to say one more time, this is what creativity is like. This is what writers do when they're able to transcend the bounds of reality and get over to the other side into the world where the fantasy exists. And this is what the process is like. And this is the way you're able to mold reality. Here, I feel like I was able to wed what is real with some of the spooks and supernatural elements that have made me happy for a long time um and speaking of if you can watch this charlie rose interview dan did you watch it on youtube
3: yeah i watched it on youtube it's um, very it funny was, it was, yeah it, it, like we were saying like it's more problematic like charlie... <laughs> i
2: know yeah, well... yeah
3: i know i feel bad because like I, I have a friend who worked for charlie rose when that was all going down and like i've always really enjoyed his interview style but it's unfortunate where you're like oh man you know because i the thing i liked about charlie and in this interview was like how stripped down it is where it's just two people at the table with the black background you know it's it's not very flashy, but in this particular interview, it looks like Charlie might have been drinking a little bit. Really tanked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and it's, <just laughs> it's, it's really Drinking fun.
1: a little bit versus really tanked. Oh,
3: I don't want to say allegedly, at least sprinkle the allegedly on there. Um, yeah. But King even seems a little, like I was saying, he, he seems a little more manic and animated than I normally see him. And he, they kind of brush over a little bit of like the deal with Scribner. King is like, go out and buy it. And Charlie's like, it's $28. Why should yeah. people buy it? And I think it was, again, though, it's King trying to prove to himself that he's still a number one best selling author. Like, I've never really seen him pitch the book where he's so much like, please go buy it. He says, go buy one for your friend. Buy two. And, you know, at this point, he's already gotten the success. So it's just to see him kind of keep chasing it during this interview is very interesting.
1: Yeah. It's so funny how the goalposts move like that once – you have been se- so separated for so long from your beginnings. Like this man used to work like 5,000 jobs at a time and like mm-hmm. not sleep and work at a laundromat and all that shit. And now it's like, it seems that he is maybe insecure. It's a big deal to change publishing houses and not know how it's going to go. Yeah. And so it's, he just seems nervous and defensive. And it's just like, God, Steve, calm down.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's I feel bad because it's, it's almost like success is never enough, you know? And you think of like musicians where if you have like, like i remember like in sync was platinum selling but then they would go on tv and be like we're not just pop music we're real and it's like <laughs> just enjoy enjoy what you've done enjoy what you got
0: i was going to ask like where this book falls on the king sobriety spectrum um
2: he well, actually yeah right before you got on the call we were talking a little bit about it he'd been sober about 10 years i think when he made this because he got sober in 88 i believe around there but
0: he had the relapse with the car crash
2: well, that car crash was after this. Okay, um, that's why yeah. that's why I was that's asking. like I, I'm bad with yeah. dates. Yeah, it was so, literally right after this. Yeah. Oh,
0: walking down a road like the T.R. Then.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, I know. Yeah, maybe on he, one of those curves.
2: I was literally thinking about that because um, there is that scene, yeah, where he almost doesn't almost hit uh Kyra, but could have hit Kyra, and mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about that. Um, some you know prescience there, but uh, oh. but yeah, um, no, the Charlie Rose interview is is a must watch. Uh, it's 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 a good interview. Like Charlie Rose yeah. was always able to get good interviews out of people, but yeah. He, he seems pretty soused and King seems pretty defensive and uh but there is there was two parts that made me laugh so hard one was Charlie Rose just holding up the cover of the book at one point like in the midst of another discussion and pointing out the little cabinet going what is this <laughs> which was very funny to me and then the other one was he he uh they started well King goes at one point because there you know he brings up the idea of him being a horror writer and king got defensive and is like you know some people don't even know that i wrote the shawshank redemption or the you know that that's based on and charlie rose's reply like he's like bent over like he's hunched over on his arms like in the way that you know drunk people sometimes get when they're talking and he just goes you know i think the name put a lot of people off on that (laughs) and then king just goes Uh, Yeah, maybe. Um, And then he like keeps going at this point. He's like, that's not what I was saying. at all." It's very funny. Um, So yeah. Um, And then he I just thought this was like a fun little uh, thing. Somebody asked him what he was listening to. I believe it was the Amazon interview. And he goes, I did listen to some rhythm and blues on the rewrite. But when I actually wrote the book, I was listening to a lot of George Strait, real shit kicking music. It was great. Shania Twain, the most beautiful midriff in America.
0: Oh Oh my god Christ.
3: That's oh Um, music. That's that's great when a music review (laughs) exists.
2: I know, right? Uh, what Probably scared like. what scared him in the book, and he he told this story a lot about the cellar stairway scene with the uh, thumping on the wall, because uh, he said he described it very much like the cellar in his own home. And so he says whenever he goes down there now, he gets a little bit creeped out. Um, so, uh, which is fun. Is Stephen King Mike Noonan? This is something we're going to discuss more later. But this There's is what no King... discussion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but this is what King I mean. That to makes me sad. Yeah.
0: That it seems pretty clear. More even more than no, I mean, are there Stephen King writer characters that are not Stephen King?
2: I mean, that's the thing. Is we were just we just did an episode for our archive series where we talked about um, the stories that are in The Body, um, uh, Stud City, and the Lardass Hogan story. And stand, uh, you know, The Body slash Stand by Me is was one of his first, if not the first, uh, first person, uh, you know, longer piece that he wrote. And that one again is. We could tell we, we were discussing about how very clearly it was Stephen King, um, especially when we judged it against the original publications of the two stories that are in there, which he published when he was much younger um, and he was reflecting on those stories through the character of Gordy Lachance. And uh so yeah, I think it's very hard for him to not write in the whenever he writes in the first person. I think he is it's very much him. And he yeah. sort of said that in the Charlie Rose interview. He's like Mike is more uh me than the other characters because he's a writer and he talked about the idea of writing in first person and when you do that it creates an intimacy that I think he's yeah. unable to divorce himself from. You know? Yeah. But I, even I think like too- I mean
0: Jack okay. Torrance is king too. I mean, oh, like- totally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. At least you get the third person there though. Mm-hmm.
0: He um, does describe Mike Noonan also as being trim and athletic.
3: Yeah, having a big old Johnson, so... <laughs>
0: yeah, also, that.
1: Huge knob. Huge knob. It's,
3: it's, it's got to be king.
1: Penis <laughs> equipped, as
2: Joe would say. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he said to amazon.com mike noonan is probably as close as you could get to me even though i've been careful to distance myself from him he's not as successful he has no children his wife is dead he has writer's block but our take on what the writing is about and how the writing works is very similar um and he's
1: not. all those differences are circumstantial <laughs> <Yeah. so laughs> very i was thinking
2: that too Also, yeah. he's not as successful let's just
1: yeah now, i like that too
2: <laughs> and i'm so annoyed by like i don't know i was making fun of this um with my wife, but just the idea that like, you know, Noonan's the kind of guy, he's not that successful. He's only in the top 15 of the bestseller list, not the top 10. It's like, fuck off.
0: (laughs) His French royalties are like 16,000. Yeah, exactly.
3: Not to get in the weeds. He also dedicates the book to Tabby, which I think is kind of funny because it's like, here's a man clearly having like a midlife crisis who Mm -hmm. loses his wife and is like, you know, I never cheated on my wife, but now that I'm technically single. So then he writes this book and, you know, Tabby was probably looking at like, what do you have like an escapist fantasy here? So he
1: dedicates. Oh my god. I want to talk
0: about continue to sign escapist on this?
1: fantasies. <laughs> Just go for it. We will get there.
0: I, I had a thought reading this that, you know, Tabby is um Zaftig lady, mm-hmm. right? And King never writes curvy female leads. Right. Which right. I find odd. They, like, well, they yeah. always
1: they always almost have no breasts.
0: Right. And? Teacup sized, you might say. Yeah, yeah, he
2: loves that. Yeah. And I think, too, um, yeah, the whole concept of. You know, and we talked about this a lot when we discussed the Lardass Hogan story. Uh, he, you know, overweight people in his stories are are it's it's like fetishized, you know, the way he writes it. It's it's uh, he can't not like spend four paragraphs talking about the way they jiggle. And I mean, we talked about that a lot in our thinner episode as well. It's uh you know, it's something that's always been present in King and it's even in Billy Summers. Like that's something he's never really shaken. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. Uh, lots of talk about ghost stories. He said in the audiobook interview, I actually thought this was a lovely quote. He said, My idea of the perfect story of the supernatural, I always think of sewing a garment together or hemming a skirt where the idea is to make the stitches so fine that the hem doesn't even seem to exist. That passage from what's real to what's unreal is one of the most interesting things about the genre. It's also one of the most valuable and most practical. We all seem to understand that we do live in the middle of a mystery. We go through most of our lives saying, I see faces in the bushes because of my imagination. But every now and then we're forced to the Idea that maybe I see faces in the bushes because there really are faces in the bushes. And he uh, repeated that sentiment in a couple different interviews. And the faces in the bushes are something that is, uh, you know, a recurring motif in this book. So definitely something that was on his mind at the time. Let's talk about the critical reception a little bit. Uh, mostly positive reviews from what I was seeing, although... Um, I think it's hard for, especially in later reviews, like I was reading, uh, Grady Hendrix's great tour reread of King that he did about 10 years ago. And, you know, it's, it's hard for people, I think, especially nowadays to, t- not t- to talk about this without mentioning how weird it is. Like it's, it's, it's a really strange story. Um, because, you know, it's such a mishmash of different things and nobody was really editing King. I think in the sense, especially by this point <laughs> yeah. in his career to saying, maybe you want to like cut one of these plots out, you know? Um, So uh, EW said Bag of Bones is hands down King's most narratively subversive fiction. Whenever you're positive, just positive, you know where this ghost story is heading. That's exactly when it gallops off in some jaw-dropping new direction. Although sometimes, and this time especially, I'd happily settle for a tad less imagination and a smidgen more logic. I'll keep taking those King visions, story bloat and all, because popular fiction just doesn't get any weirder than this. Salon says one of King's most disturbing and revealing works. King has been called both a sexist and a feminist. And in this tremendously compelling, but ultimately rather baffling novel, he earns both epithets. His resolution of the Mike Maddie, Joe, Kyra quadrangle is so unsatisfying. I won't tell you, though, you can probably guess that even Mike inside the story sees it as a male novelist cheap trick. We'll talk about that quote uh, at the end of the book later. Here for more than 500 pages, he stirs an ample assortment of subplots, skillfully shuttling between the natural and the supernatural worlds, along the way exploring the simple and profound intimacies of marriage and love and small-town life. All of this is animated by characters, circumstances, and dialogue that affirm King's blindfolded familiarity with everything indigenous to Maine. That's from The New Yorker. Any thoughts on those reviews?
0: Lots of thoughts, but I think
1: they'll be relevant
0: to later (laughs) sections. Just an inside publishing game sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, If you look in my copy, um, the Praise for Bag of Bones section starts with Amy Tan, which is like pretty literary. Yeah. And then goes to Entertainment Weekly, Mademoiselle, New York Times Book Review, but then I couldn't help but notice the Minneapolis Star Tribune, kind of a outlier of things you might want to quote mm-hmm. um and like uh, the library journal i don't know like it's not if you're aiming for highbrow like those that list of right you know blurbs yeah. is not the amy tan particular. quote
1: literally ends with it places both the ghost story and stephen king in their proper place on the That's shelf of funny. literary yeah. american fiction and it's like did you write this for her and ask if she could just publish it like well they yeah. played also, in the-, the proper
0: place is like kind of like pretty shady like it's a yeah. nag yeah you know like <laughs> well they played in the uh, rock... book. really put you in your place yeah
2: the rock you know? bottom remainders uh his band amy tan oh, that's was right. that's played right. with him so they were good buddies uh that and was also, her I mean, doing a solid form. Employed
3: for by entertainment weekly as well so oh, that's right. having like your employer pl- i don't know of course they're gonna say nice things about you although maybe he wasn't writing for them in 98
2: yeah i sure. i've noticed i
0: think he was
2: yeah i i I, I've noticed as I as I always do, um Put together these these uh you know these episodes. Um, EW is is always pretty pretty generous to him. Although there was one I can't remember what it was. Uh, but they panned something that he worked on. But I remember I knew that they were kind of shilling a little bit when uh they gave Golden Years like a rapturous review. And Golden Years is his nineteen ninety one miniseries that is objectively terrible. Uh, we have two fun episodes about it. Uh, please go listen to them. But yeah, cool. Let's talk about let's do a let me just read the synopsis really quick now that we've we're sort of edging into the hook and uh, discussion of the book itself set in the main territory King has made mythic bag of bones recounts the plight of 40 year old best-selling novelist Mike Noonan who is unable to stop grieving following the sudden death of his wife Joe and who can no longer bear to face the blank screen of his computer now his nights are plagued by vivid nightmares all set at the main summer house he calls Sarah laughs despite these dreams or perhaps because of them Mike returns to the lake side getaway. There he finds his beloved Yankee town held in the grip of a powerful millionaire, Max DeVore, who will do anything to take his three-year-old granddaughter away from her widowed young mother. As Mike is drawn into their struggle, and as he falls in love with both mother and child, he is also drawn into the mystery of Sarah Laughs, now the site of ghostly visitations, ever-escalating nightmares, and the sudden recovery of his writing ability. What are the forces that have been unleashed here, and what do they want of Mike Noonan? Now that we've done that, let's talk about The Hook. Ah,
1: yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it exactly.
2: Here in The Hook, we talk about the themes and the general shape of uh, the story that we're dealing with here. And based on uh, something Mel wrote when I sent out my notes earlier, I want to start with this question what the hell is this book? Uh, how does this read to you? Romance, ghost story, custody narrative. Uh, what stands out as the strongest part of this book? Because Mel, you, you kind of mentioned that it's this mishmash that uh, serves to be both its uh, biggest strength and biggest weakness. So would you like to elaborate on that?
1: I, I just think it's so messy in a way that feels intensely personal. Uh, there's that pettiness that we've already latched onto in terms of his literal mapping of publishing houses and agents and all of that bureaucracy. But I do feel that you can also, maybe this has been happening for a bit in this period, but there's a lot of his fascination with crime in here. Mm -hmm. Um, The sort of detail oriented stuff about going to get the lawyers, going to these depositions, looking into custody law, even the um, shootout scene, things like that are very kind of like pulpy yep. and and really akin to what he's doing kind of now, I feel like. They're like the seeds of that starting to flourish. Um, and then you can also, like the gothic stuff feels a little almost unnatural to me because it is very much like oh look at him trying to do a gothic novel. like this is really apparent yeah, that he's trying yeah. to do a gothic novel Mel, as as
2: sort of um perhaps the most or one of the most literary people i know uh would you <laughs> would you say how would you sort of describe the difference between gothic uh and like traditional horror you
1: know oh, oh boy <laughs> Um, defining gothic is really hard. King is right in that quote that it's, it's a lot about um, what is buried mm-hmm. and what comes to the surface. That's it's usually has to do with secrets. Yeah. Um, it's more atmospheric than it is um, bodily, even though it often involves bodies uh, interred or otherwise that, that yeah. have to be dug up. Um, it has a strong, strong sense of place. The house is, is like a very important right element of the gothic um but the gothic is really hard to to nail down i do think i do think the most crucial part is secrets and connections between people a lot it's usually family but here it's also like a small town yeah um and how those things come to light in a way that breaks down barriers of of sanity and mores um social mores um yeah
0: secrets
2: Yeah, I, I I agree. Uh Anna, what do you got?
0: Damsel in Distress. <laughs> I think also is a pretty big part yeah, of it. Yeah. Um usually it's it's there's sometimes a female lead. Mm-hmm. Like that's actually one of the interesting like innovations of gothic horror is that you sometimes get a woman who's like entering into the picture and has to and is in not necessarily doesn't necessarily save herself, but is like like the thing that gets the plot going
2: yeah that's like Rebecca the DeMari yeah example. exactly yeah. and
0: that's one way that this book is kind of retrograde right like mm-hmm. it, it takes the damsel in distress and makes her just in distress like she has almost no agency right at all right like yeah just zero even in sex she's at she's at the whim of him yep right Yep. like she's begs him <laughs> to fuck her
1: <laughs> she
2: loves old she loves old writers um i
1: I will say that i was convinced that maddie and mike were going to turn out to be related that it would turn out that the the quote-unquote dangerous element of their relationship was that they were siblings especially because max devore Seems to keep suggesting that Mike had all these rel- these relatives right. in the area, that and Mike kept dismissing really it. Yeah. I was like, "That would be real fucking gothic. Let's let's go yeah. there." Right. I was really hoping that's what was going to happen, and it, it didn't. Well, it, it, but they are distant relatives, right? Because not mm-hmm.
2: some... it's not confirmed that they're related? It's just like the bloodlines Spo- go so far back, and like there is but I, but a I, Noon in there, but yeah, they're I, not like. Yeah, no, I, But I thought related. during
3: the Sarah uh, laughs attack sequence. Part of the reason she's going after him is because it turns out his no, relations were not what he thought. It wasn't right. No, no he but does, he's related this,
1: to the Austers. Yeah, the, he okay, has relations okay, sorry, there. Other side, other They're side. just gotcha, not connected gotcha. to the divorce yeah. by blood. Okay. Right, and that gotcha.
2: does feel like that does feel like a missed opportunity almost. Like it's right there in front of you to make the yeah. narrative so much more interesting, and it almost does feel like because of we do get that note at the end where he says, you know, and I mean. If you're listening to this, we assume you've read the book, so prepare for spoilers. Maddie, uh, like, he even sort of admits he's like, well, killing her off is like something that a really shitty, hacky novelist would do. And then he, but he does it in the book. And it seems sort of his way to admit that he didn't know what to do next, you know? And he talked about this in some interviews, the idea of like Raymond Chandler would always say like, oh, if you write yourself into a corner, have a man walk through the door with a gun. Um, And that's sort of what he does. So it just seems like there were opportunities to do something a little more interesting, but...
1: I feel like even the book is like yearning for it. Like there are moments when he goes from talking about the mother to talking about the daughter in the same kind of sexualized language, like incest and, and like taboo are already built into the DNA of the book. And the fact that he feels almost as though something supernaturally is like, don't sleep with this woman. It's Mm -hmm. like too dangerous, but there is an attraction that he can't quite explain. Like I was like really gearing up for it. Yeah. Yeah. Making her so young,
0: that would also kind of explain why she's so goddamn young, Mm -hmm. which is is a choice that king made that he did not have to make yeah like there is no reason she couldn't be in her late 20s yeah. mid 20s you know like you can be poor and struggling and and be at you know the victim of a rich bully and not be 21
2: right right yeah, the age stuff, they're, they're, he does like obsess over that. And we'll talk more about it in a bit. Like, not just with Maddie, but just with, like, he was, he's trying to like square at one point, like, um, the age differences between various people including Rajette and Rajet mm-hmm. and um and Max and everybody but uh but yeah um and Mel I kind of going off what you were saying too like I thought that was a good point about the crime aspect because he clearly did lose himself a little bit I think in the research he clearly talked to some lawyers um and really got a good handle on what would happen in this kind of situation which I appreciate to some extent but then it goes um, none of it really pays off because the actual custody arrangement, the the legal aspect of it kind of just dissipates, you know, at one he point. He dies. I mean, yeah. the,
0: the divorce dies. Yeah. Okay. And I want to say one thing about that, which is yeah. that he must have been really proud of himself for using the phrase sexual equity <laughs> as being the problem in right. a custody battle for women. Mm-hmm. I will point out, that when it is when the case is that a man might get custody because he's has a better earning power mm-hmm. than a single mother, that's not sexual equity at work, exactly. Yeah. you know yeah. like he, he and he refers to that a few times, like, oh, women's lib. Yep. You know, yeah, he didn't say women's lip, but like there's this, <laughs> he inference does do a little treatise
2: lip. on feminism at one point. Though. He does. Yeah. But there's this, this inference book is full that, of treatises.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's an inference that like, oh, you know, victim of their own success. Those ladies. Right. Having trouble because they're not considered, you know, because we say men are just as good at raising children. They don't necessarily get custody. Right. And that just seems. Oh, and then also the, the rump wrangling
2: rump also. wrangling
0: rump wrangling yeah, i was oh, about
2: to the mention de- that. the
1: detours into like is
0: this and how is like, this
1: homophobic the- and unethical i guess it doesn't matter
0: yeah <laughs> I mean, right like we're just gonna go after the homos on the stand yeah Why? that was because we can i
2: was gonna bring that up us. because <laughs> that's super interesting to me because it's really repellent but at the same time like yeah i i don't I, that was obviously a thing a lawyer would do at that yeah. time. Yeah, like it felt, it felt, common. yeah, it felt honest. And it felt like, um, it didn't even make me dislike Starro or John, whatever, less because I, I could see how it was just rooted in this kind of, that was the game at the time. I'll, I'll but, be a little repulsed
0: by yourself. Yeah. I, I know. mean, it's the late nineties. It's right. not like, I mean, you know, people are fighting against don't ask, don't tell. There's a huge fight about them, you know, um, a defensive marriage act people like king who consider themselves like true progressives right are going around talking about not marriage equality but gay marriage right you know like you could be a little kind of like oh should we do that you know maybe not
1: right <laughs>
3: but I, guess I, I i took it as though just he
0: might also might actually be good guard like i don't know yeah, like, I, I took
3: it if, as a lawyer who wanted to win like yeah sure and that's but is, but be disgusted that, with yourself no yeah i know but you like so a gay marriage wasn't even really until like was 2003 that Texas feed Lawrence. So this was lawyers would do these kind of tricks all the time. Well, I'm not saying it's right, but that's why the guy commands the money. And that's the money is to, you know, compromise your values. Right.
1: But I think it's Mike, Mike choice is, to Mike have is Mike, is Mike be like,
0: Oh, well, yeah, Mike doesn't, know. Mike doesn't
1: love it. He doesn't love that they're doing it, but he goes right. Right. I, just along I just don't with
0: like it. Mike. So maybe
1: that's <laughs> like my, well, I will I, say Randall, we were sort of discussing this a little bit, alongside the sort of attention to detail that goes with his crime writing and the getting really into the lawyer stuff it's it's sort of the same attention to detail that can go into a lot of king's procedural writing Mm -hmm. and it feels like i characterize it as writing defensively like there is something strange where he's almost anticipating a complaint about the writing not being realistic or it not having the kind of like verisimilitude that a reader would enjoy. Sure. And that's why we get like so many fucking pages of Mike before he goes to Sarah laughs or, or of Mike's quest to, to track down these owls and like calling Joe's friends. Yeah. These, these like very defensively written passages that are so granular, um, in how they present, how he tracks something down or his thought process. Right. Um, doesn't that- even seem to me like it's a King fascination thing. It just seems to me like King being like, this could happen. Don't
0: tell me it couldn't happen. Here's how it would happen. <laughs> and that's what I would say about the the going after the you know gay couple is yeah. that he's trying to be like, this is how it would work. Yeah, You know, like, and this may seem disgusting, but this is how it would work. Right. And that, But he also says at the beginning that the intro, he's like, he was asked by, I guess, his lawyer to put a good lawyer in there. <laughs> and, and I guess I assumed lawyer. when I saw that it meant a good care, a, char- a lawyer of character. Yeah. And not just oh, like no. a I talented was, lawyer. I, I
3: thought it was a some, like anti-Semitic, like put a good Jewish New York lawyer. <sighs> like, that's <laughs> that's what I read from that
0: um well i guess i like, my, I like john yeah. i did too i did too except for that one little thing.
2: i just think my takeaway I thought is he'd be like, a good
0: match for maddie
2: it's yeah it's obviously like such a harsh sort of thing to raise and say like okay this is what we could do that it obviously has like a kind of repulsive uh reaction obviously like how we've reacted to it but it ends up being a complete non-factor in the story. And so I'm just kind of like, why did we even need to get all of that? You know? And I think that's my thing is like, we didn't need all these pages of it. And it makes me think about the uh, rumored 1,000 page draft of this book. And it's like, I just think a lot about how much of that research that he did uh, seems to have found his way into it. But We need to
1: know, we need it because it introduces us to Roger, who can't be the Guardian for the reveal later that Rajette is his daughter. Yeah, that's a
2: good point. Good name. point. Yeah. No, J-
0: Rogette is Max DeVore's daughter. Yes. They're both They're both right, 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 his right. children.
2: Yeah. That's a good point, Mel. Could be, I,
0: uh, there could have been any other, lots of other reasons that <laughs> Roger could not have could been have her, her, her guardian, honestly. <laughs> he, he could be dead. He that could would be also dead. Be, he would be like, yeah, he had a son named Roger. Oh, look, weird. His assistant's name is Rajette. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it's, it, I think on the comment on the 1,000-page draft. Also, they too, should have had K names. <laughs> yeah, that's actually true. Um, but in terms of like the the first like 175 pages is the negotiating with the publisher. There's like a chunk of the lawyer, but it's not enough. And it makes me wonder if what they cut from the 1,000, they left, you know, those two about 100-page-a-piece stories that don't really pay off and get anywhere, you know? Yeah. And if yeah. maybe there were going to be edits that we could just have – you know, Joe die, and then he's already there versus this process of him getting to town.
2: Yeah, that's a good point, Dan. And I think that, I think that speaks to what I was saying about like, uh, there's multiple storylines. I feel like never really come to fruition in this. Whereas the, uh, you know, the Sarah Tidwell stuff is kind of, you know, hinted at in the early pages, but isn't really explored until well past halfway through the book. And that ends up being sort of the real skeleton key to everything. And I think, uh, I think that speaks to a lot of things and it reminds me one when the when the reports were coming out sort of trashing King for his 18 million dollar advance and uh, they were interviewing a lot of anonymous uh people at publishing houses about this and one of them said about bag of bones it's 500 or it takes 500 pages to get going you know what i mean so i think I like, was
1: so pissed when mike is like it, we've already been through like 100 pages of of mike navel gazing and then he's like I think I need a vacation and I'm like finally like, yeah. he's going to go he's going to go to the house he's going to go to Sarah laughs he needs and a then vacation. He, goes to vacation, but he just yeah. goes on a totally separate and vacation. Almost
0: fucks so not entirely age appropriate women. I am like really want to have sex with him. They you know what they wanted to have sex with him but he
2: Yeah, no, he was a good boy. Really. I just love that he just goes to Key West for just like 10 pages and I was, was like, like
1: are <laughs> you fucking kidding me? Get to the house this book is so
0: wildly imbalanced. It, <laughs> I want to say something about, like, the plot lines that don't really go anywhere. Yeah. I found the whole, like, the townspeople are Martians thing. Yeah. One of the most intriguing things in the book. Yeah. And it's a little goes back to Tommyknockers, right? Like, mm-hmm. this idea of of a town kind of being able to mind meld. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, like, you could have cut that. Yeah. <laughs> like, it really wouldn't have. You could have just had the K-name. The K-name thing is kind of a cool reveal, Yeah. Right. I love the Uh, K names. But you could have just had that.
2: Right. I agree, Anna, because And also
0: had them be suspicious of outsiders. Sure. Right.
2: Yeah, the whole mind meld thing is a really neat idea that I was really gelling with. My problem is that they don't really develop, and we can that's talk more I about mean, this later. Yeah, they don't really I mean. develop the town. Like we meet a couple of these guys. Like um, I believe Bill is the one we get to know the most, but yeah. we really don't spend a lot of time with these people. And uh, because I mean, one of the most effective parts to me was the concept of like of them amassing when he goes back to the, um, the fair yeah and well that but then also when he goes back to the um house at the end and it's like it hints that all of the they're all in their cars and they've all gathered outside like of his estate and they're all like waiting to see what will happen and then that doesn't really pay off and that's something that i just really i was like really annoyed by i'm like is this mind meld like are they all amassing to make sure that mike does what you know he's supposed to do or whatever uh and then that sort of weight that sort of pressure never really paid off and um yeah. Just it's one. It's an of the incredibly weird
1: notes. structure where I do feel as though the book starts to pursue and answer its questions that are central at the same time it poses them. Like we don't even know the significance of Sarah Tidwell until things are really kind of moving. Yep. Um, and we just like don't even know the right questions to be asking until he's knee-deep in a mystery we didn't know existed. Yes. Um, same with the with what you're saying, like the small town as a mind-melding. Force. we don't know that the history of the small town is even significant until Mm -hmm. we are starting to like recover the answers joe has already discovered and we could
0: have found those notebooks like way earlier way earlier
1: and it would have probably
0: been okay For i just would have loved to know more about
1: these questions about sarah like the mentions of her even sound like they were sprinkled in after the fact in the first half of the book because they knew they had to reference her in some way before foreground it really somewhat yeah
3: yeah yeah what's interesting so i i didn't watch the whole of the miniseries yet but i was kind of skimming through just i wanted to see how they kind of laid it out and sarah tidwell appears very early on in Good. the miniseries <laughs> he has multiple dreams with her appearing though which
0: uh, I, yeah i think him off <laughs> yeah does
3: she uh, jerk him <laughs> off <laughs> it was made for a and e so probably but uh <laughs> but no but like she seemed like a more central character whereas i, I agree like it doesn't we don't even really get to halfway point before she's even briefly being mentioned. And I, I agree that it doesn't pay off. Even like the letters on the refrigerator don't pay off. And like, there's a lot of these things where you're setting this up and then it's just, we never kind of get there or when we do it's anticlimactic. Yeah. And like just there's in terms too of the yeah. town, like instead of that, it would have been very interesting. I think it had that ramped to a little bit more of like a psychic community, but I think just the town gossiping was the closest they got. Like the way they're telekinetic is just that they, Gossip to each other.
2: Well, and they like right. mobilize against like uh, Maddie and stuff like that. Yeah. Like there is yeah. that aspect of it, which is is neat. But again, it just feels and I the the fridge magnets, the the ghost voices he hears, um, like the crying, uh, all of that stuff. It's it's really eerie and cool, but it it, it never feel I I still don't know sometimes like who was moving the fridge magnets, and I've read this whole book. You I know? assume
0: it's Joe, but also uh, she's super unhelpful. Yeah, like really. <laughs> You know, like, she could have put, rather than, like, sprinkling owls under the studio as, you know, acrostics in his <laughs> novel, which sounded pretty good, by the way. I was, like, super bummed out that he didn't finish it. Like, why not? That sounds like a pretty good book. I know. You know? He like, she could have it. spelled out owls under the studio <laughs> the on the refrigerator.
2: Would have been like, less, less what mystery. What are the <laughs>
0: limits of the refrigerator magnets? That was my question, is, like, why do they have these misspellings? And I guess I And also that it was dumb because... thing about page down-
1: it was because and, Sarah was constantly trying to interfere and it, it was hard to do anything overt, but I, I really like the idea of a very nebulous communal haunting where it could be all these ghosts of children as well. Yeah, and like, a good point, you actually yeah? can't quite identify all of the forces at work in the house. And that's a that's an element I I really liked. Cool. I,
0: I liked that too. I think it is. I think some of that stuff has really good spooky writing. Like I said, this is not a badly written book. The spooky mm-hmm. stuff is really fun. Yeah. It it's just it has a reprehensible main character. Can <laughs> we talk? We're in the hook,
1: and I would love I would love okay. to give my uh my love and lust rant because yes. this is this is such a huge component of the book. It's like what he wrote about. It's one of his soapboxes along with writing. I right. think. Yeah, um, go forth, Mel. So I think he's super concerned with lust in this book. Um, and I should specify men's lust. There's there's really nothing about women's lust that isn't theoretical. Um, he But he has treatises on lust. For him, it is one of the most powerful and undeniable <laughs> forces that can seize a man. It's not that it leaves a man blameless for his conduct, thankfully, but it is consuming to the point of eclipsing like all other feelings and urges and he tries to play like it's the most natural and harmless thing in the world um he he sort of has this reference to like a quote-unquote feminist essay that he reads in a paper at one Mm -hmm. point where he talks about the let me do what i want thing and and mike is uh taken aback by that and says that's not actually the case and like it ends with a with quite literally him saying like not all men like not all men are pigs yep um but then Mike Mike does fulfill the sort of like warning of that essay. He begins to sort of, liter- he literally later breathes that phrase into Maddie's ear repeatedly without even realizing it. And I, and I just don't think that King is conscious of this. Like it's sort of happening against King's will maybe. Like the book isn't self-aware enough to be pointing out Mike's hypocrisy. I don't think, unless someone disagrees. But... I, I think Anna's already sort of brought up this point too. Mike only relates to women sexually. Like it's funny to me that he talks about this book being a romance because his memories of his wife, his treasured photo of her, all of it is grounded only in desire and desire on his terms because we realize later that he never even communicated with his wife when he was working. They did not have a relationship of equals where she could talk to him about anything, including this very important life-threatening shit and her pregnancy. It was only when he finishes a book... That they can talk, but first they have to celebrate by fucking, right? And that's like mostly what right. we hear about. And I was going to say um, that, like,
2: most of the d- dynamics that exist between them that we that he reflects on are all sexual in nature. They're all sexual with his yeah. wife.
0: And yeah, the way she re- like the, she reads his first book mm-hmm. and drops yes. her panties in oh his lap. Oh my god! I was going to actually read the part that you're referring to. This, yeah, it's actually do. It gives in the good, Atlantic. Some good context. Yeah. Um, I thought the essay is at least 50% full of shit. The assumption that a man can find real sexual pleasure only by turning a woman into a kind of jack-off accessory, which is what happens in the book, (laughs) um, says more, like literally what happens in the book, says more about the observer than the participants. The lady had a lot of jargon and a fair amount of wit, but underneath she was only saying the Somerset Magnum, and I want to point out he only cites male authors throughout this book. Mm -hmm. Joe's old favorite had Sadie Thompson say in Rain, a story written 80 years before. Men are pigs, filthy, dirty pigs, all of them. And then this is actually the clarifying part I want to say why he says not all men. Actually, what he says is, but we are not pigs as a rule, not beasts, or at least not until we are pushed to the final extremity. And if we are pushed to it, the issue is rarely sex. It's usually territory. I've heard feminists argue that to men, sex and territory are interchangeable, but that is very far from the truth. Yeah. And And yet he's copping to the in extremity part, which brings me to like the, the, she, he's, he has this like weird line, right. At the last part before Maddie dies where he was like, it wasn't until she started dancing.
1: Yeah. That I became, that I became the beast. Like it's so, it's so explicitly referencing when he, when he starts whispering in her ear without realizing it, let me do what I want. Let me do what I want. That moment is like very terrifying to me. (laughs) Like the fact that the book doesn't, I don't think the book recognizes that it is like unwillingly fulfilling the the prophecy of that essay. I'm like, that's, that's fucking weird that it doesn't realize that it, that it's doing it so explicitly.
3: Well, I think he maybe during the actual attack on Sarah Tidwell, maybe that was King fulfilling that as explicitly as possible because she was in Maine, right? She was a Southern singer and they literally like, you're not allowed to be walking out here they attack her violently, so in King's mind, it's like, well, I'm not doing that, but these yeah. guys oh, are yeah. worse no, than I, me. You know what I mean, like, he's like, see, that's the extreme that I'm not, but what I'm doing with her, that's okay, and it's, he's not, he's kind of defending himself, but he's not seeing that he's guilty of the same thing.
1: Yeah, there's, there's, so a, it's such oh. a one-to-one mapping. <laughs> it's like crazy no, that he's I, using I, that phrase. No, I'm not it,
3: I just think that's what, right, I'm trying to right, figure yeah. out like, what
2: he would be going for in that.
1: Yeah, that makes sense to me that that's like, he wouldn't make that connection.
2: Yeah, I think uh, uh, what what you're saying, Anna and Mel. Like, uh, I have a section. This is where I wrote his horniness is out of control in my notes. <laughs> um, and this was 300 pages in because I'd already like made many notes about the horniness, but I hit this point. And I because it's this long paragraph, and I'll read it. But this is where I started. I was like, he can't stop. Like he is.
0: <laughs> like
2: he's out of control. <laughs> he like he is. He is he's, out of control. He so. like, had
0: danced.
2: <laughs> it, yeah, it's yeah. It's uh, he says. Um, Maddie's like, what am I going to do, Mike? What am I going to do? Because she had been fired and like she has no money and she's struggling. Like she's calling him saying I'm fucked. You know, my whole life is fucked and I don't want to take your money as like uh, as as charity. I want you know, I want to rebuild my life, but I'm really fucked. And this is what he says. I thought quite coldly. Why not become my mistress? Your title will be research assistant, a perfectly Jake occupation as far as the IRS is concerned. I'll throw in clothes, a couple charge cards, a house, say goodbye to the rust bucket double wide on Wasp Hill Road, and a two-week vacation. How does February on Maui sound? Plus Kai's education, of course, and a hefty cash bonus at the end of the year. I'll be considerate too, considerate and discreet, once or twice a week, and never until your little girl is fast asleep. Uh... All you have to do is say yes and give me a key. All you have to do is slide over when I slide in. All you have to do is let me do what I want all through the dark, all through the night. Let me touch where I want to touch. Let me do what I want to do. Never say no. Never say stop. And then I literally was like,
1: stop. Okay. But like, again, that's so on the nose that I'm like, is is he trying to do some commentary here? Like, does he know how fucked up this is? Like, can we give it a generous reading and be
0: like, is I try to seeing tried around to, Mike Noonan.
2: But it's and the, the way that it plays out. Make,
0: yeah. yeah, The classism part is so over the top, like the whole the first meeting where he's like, she'll be pregnant before she's in high school yeah. of Kyra. yeah, Pregnant <laughs> by the time she's 12. Yeah, God. pregnant <laughs> by the time she's 12 is what he says about the three year old. Yeah,
2: the you classism in, in that section is, is unreal. And I ranted about this a little bit in Billy Summers, the way he talks about some lower class people in that book, too. It drives me a little bit crazy, but... But yeah, I think um I think those are really valid discussions and it's just if there is I I do think Mel because I agree with you that it does seem like he's trying to say something. And Mike struggles a lot and he admits many times she could be my daughter, I shouldn't be doing this. He never classifies it as creepy or anything. He just says this isn't I shouldn't do this. But the thing is it always Mike is always portrayed as in this book as a sensitive like uh, good guy protagonist. He, he's, there's whatever dark side we get it exists like in like that monologue, that little part I just read, which to me is exceedingly dark. Very dark, very scary. Yeah, in the context of where it is. But Mike never really investigates that dark side of himself and then is rewarded. Maddie is obsessed with him and she thinks he's the best and he finally decides like, no, this is a good thing. And like, you know, before she dies, he's like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you what you want, baby. I'll come fuck you tonight, you know? And it's just kind of like that whatever that, Investigation is that exists in the book. I don't see any fruit that comes from that exploration. I just see a guy who gets what he wants,
1: you know? It's just not handled deftly enough. But I am very interested, like King says in one of the quotes that I think were in your notes, that he was just really interested in investigating this taboo, like both the taboo of the age difference, but also the idea that, like, men of a certain age just can't help themselves when faced with a very attractive, very young woman. And there is something admirable in tackling what he would call a politically incorrect topic. And I, I wish he had done it more deftly. I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about, I've talked about this before as we've already touched on it. One of his like biggest fascinations is setting aside fidelity in service of what seems like a faded lust. Like he loves characters that can cheat on their wives guilt-free due to a certain element of destiny. We see it in it. We see it in the dead zone and elsewhere in the mist totally. And here it's a bit more like maybe understandable because Joe's been dead for four years, but the mm-hmm. conceit rings very much the same to me. Like, it, it just seems like he's not ready to do with anyone until Maddie comes along. And then it's this sort of faded thing.
2: Yeah. I'll, there, I'll, I'll, oh, go ahead. Mom.
1: There isn't a, I do think there's an appeal to that. Like, again, I want to approach it generously. Like, I feel like He's scratching the surface of like a big idea that there are different kinds of love and that to love someone other than your partner need not necessarily be a betrayal, that we love who we love in ways unique to each person and that fulfilling your desire for one person doesn't diminish your respect or desire for the other. But again, he like can't really follow through here. And I I think it's mostly because the chief issue is that these women exist for Mike to lust after them, to desire them. And it's a romanticized version of the very objectification that he mentions in the essay. It's like, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not someone who's going to like turn a woman into a fleshlight, but like all of these women, Joe, Maddie, Sarah, even Kyra to an extent, are are narrative fleshlights for yeah. Mike's story. Like they, like Anna said, they have no agency. They don't even have character. There's just nothing about them that is unique or memorable. Mm-hmm. They're only there to further Mike's I don't know, narrative agenda.
0: I would say two things. Okay. Um, One is that just on the infidelity angle, someone who's been thinking a lot about this lately, um, (laughs) the way he thinks about his own sort of quasi-fidelity to Joe versus his suspicion that she might have been fucking around on him, like not very generous, Mm
2: -hmm. you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, not super generous to not generous to Joe in any level. Not generous to her in the fact that like there's no reason for him to suspect that she might be fooling around. Like they had lots of sex. They apparently had a great relationship. The only way, and this is actually segues nicely into my second point, the only way he fooled around on her with, with was with his books. Mm. Mm. And I think that there is a theme here that again Stephen King may or may not have been conscious of of writing as pornography. Mm. Like the act of creating your own little world. Cause he, he gets rapturous about the zone you're in when you're writing and how good it feels. Yeah, right? it totally
1: maps onto the lust thing is like just eclipsing all else. Like you can't fight it. Yeah, like, and he when says he's, he's in, in the that zone, zone yeah. like he's in mm-hmm. that in the zone, zone,
0: and Joe can't he doesn't job has to pin notes to his fucking shirt like he's a child yeah you know and it just feels good and there's a couple lines he uses, that you know sort of make made me remind me of masturbation where he's like writing be good or bad it passes the time yeah you know like it, 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 it there's this masturbatory element not to just the actual masturbatory fantasies but to this act of creation mm-hmm. and I think he also s- seems to think that that's how everyone feels about writing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which is my biggest complaint about when he talks about craft, he he really yeah. universalizes
0: his very unique experience. And I mean, there's some parts experience. of it that are true. Like there's this one section where he talks about how you can get lost in your own mm-hmm. creative process. And I do know that it, we are all writers here and there are times when you hit this place where you, d- time does fall away. Yeah. And it's a really cool, it's that, it's that flow sensation but that's not all writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's also some writing. And again, and on writing, I feel like he's much more generous about this, about yeah. the universality of of what you can do with writing right? Um, and how it connects us. There's something sad about the fact then that ultimately at the end of the book,
1: he wasn't even truly writing a book. He was channeling Joe, trying to give him a message. He like... Mm-hmm. Jerking him off. Yeah. Yeah. Like... <laughs> It was collaborative, but not like he didn't even notice her like infringing on the process. I don't know. This writing as fucking metaphor is like blowing my
3: mind. (laughs) One thing that I thought was interesting, too, is the circumstances behind the end of the marriage. Right. Because becoming a widow or a widower with a marriage that was going well, no one can really fault you then if you move on to different people. Right. It's like if you ended the marriage because of some infidelity, there was fighting, there was disputes You walk away a little bit guilty, but in this, he's completely clean, right? If anything, he's sympathetic. And I think if you tie that to the falling out that he had with Viking as a publisher, right, that was sort of the end of his publisher's marriage. And it wasn't, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. They were not paying him enough money. They weren't treating him right. Right. So it was their fault. And now he gets to sort of explore and do, hey, now I can get with anyone. You know, now I'm back on the scene. And I don't know, I just think it's interesting how those might have tied together as he was writing this.
1: He just yeah. seems to be truly also like like genuinely as a man in the world, like struggling with the fact that he's attracted to young women. Like this really yeah. does seem like he wanted to write about it. Like
0: and he yeah, pops and to and that kill in them, quotes and, and, and like kill them off. <laughs> yeah. And then make it non-problematic.
2: Yeah, I can I, read and, let me read that quote really yeah, quick that, that you're quote. referencing. Um he talks a lot about this and we can talk, we can Uh, address some of these quotes when we get to heroes and villains but uh, let me just say uh, this one this was from I believe the audiobook interview that's where he talked about it a lot He said, I'd say that what I presented, I presented from the viewpoint of a 50 year old man who's been happily married and happily monogamous for the entire course of that marriage. But certainly we'll be driving along the street, and my wife will say to me, What are you looking at? And she knows perfectly well what I'm looking at. There'll be some cute little girl on the other side of the street, maybe 22 years old, wearing shorts and a mini top. And I'll always tell her what my brother used to tell me a man on a diet can read a menu. But there is a real attraction in guys my age to women who are younger. It's a male version of the body clock, where women start to look at babies and want one as they get older. And incredible,
1: me... incredible equivalence. <laughs> I like. I could talk about that for three hours. <laughs> I was
2: literally about to say that's where Mel added a note that just said "Elmaia what," <laughs> um, because you get okay. Continue the quote. Because you get to a stage in your life where it just becomes a biological imperative. It's probably your body's way of saying you've only got so many years left where you're viable as a reproductive entity. Hurry up. And that comes later with men than it does with women because we last longer as reproductive uh, entities. Um, This is
1: is like he's mapping writing onto fucking again with this universality thing. Like he thinks that all men are like this when in fact Stephen King is just like a horned up motherfucker. (laughs) Like He just really wants to fuck. And like Steve, like that's okay. But don't Absolutely. be, like, writing fucking amateurish papers on it and being like, this is how men are, like...
2: Well, I guess my main question is, is like, Maddie is not just 22, right? Like, she's not 20, 21. She's not 28, she's, she's not 25, she's not 22. She's 21, and it is explicitly stated in the text that she looks younger than that, that she looks like a teenager. He thinks that she's... um. He thinks that she's uh, Kyra's sister. She's trailer
0: trash also. Yeah, he, he yeah that's He thinks a big that part she might have had too. her, she popped out that that baby pretty fast, you mm-hmm. know? She has yeah. a prepubescent
1: body with like not yeah. much boob. We are constantly told that she has a little bit of boob, but not much boob.
0: But then he
2: reflects yeah. often, Mel and I, you, Mel and I j- you and I joked about this, it's like, he in the early parts of the book, before he becomes close with her, he cannot reflect on her without remembering that his arm brushed her small boob. Yes. Uh, it is, it is relentless. Uh, and, and, and when and, it
1: happens, he's like, I shouldn't, I won't think about this again. Right. <laughs> like I shouldn't really be thinking about it. It's just and such a later, weird, it's...
2: I guess this is my thing is like, it just seems like such a weird thing. Like the whole idea of like, Mel, you mentioned this earlier, the whole idea of finding love, uh, after loss. Like, you know, you've lost, you've lost your, the one you thought you were going to be with the rest of your life and finding someone new. He's explored that in a couple of books. And I, I think he's done it better in other books. Um, and uh, but yeah, here I think it's just a little bit weird and perhaps unnecessary that. And I, I, Ana, you mentioned this too. Like, did this character need to be that young? Like, it really doesn't serve the plot. It just is, cl- like you mentioned, Mel, it's something that was on his mind clearly and something he was struggling He's with. was really
1: struggling. <laughs> yeah. And I think
2: that's part of, I called this a midlife crisis novel. And I think it feeds into that. I think he was dealing with a lot of insecurities uh, when he wrote this book uh, with publishing, with his legacy, with his career. Um, and here, obviously, just with his uh sexual impulses and the idea that he knows he's getting older and he's less attractive you know i mean because that's just what happens when you get older and um or at least to dudes you know rocking dudes like me and stevie and so uh it's, <laughs> it's
0: dudes. i don't dudes. think he concedes that he's any less attractive <laughs> he
1: says at one point that he's his hair is thinning and it's yeah, like way but, late in the novel and i like
0: <laughs> yeah but you know he's got a, he's got he's athletic and trim is an enormous
1: <laughs> love a trim I love a trim 40 year old writer um, um yeah it's 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 interesting stuff to me uh but yeah I think, I, just... I think it's like you can write about that and make it great he just doesn't do it very interestingly like I am not at all going to stop to to be like don't write about how men find 21 year olds attractive even though they're 40. I'm sure that is something he was legitimately thinking about a lot. And I would honestly like to read about that. That's interesting. He just doesn't handle it artfully or deftly. And the women aren't characters. Yeah. (laughs) And
2: And I can just say, like, as a dude in my 30s, you know, I can say... like, yeah. And I mean, I, th- I just think it's true for anybody. Yeah. You get older, you're going to be attracted to younger people. Sometimes it's just because young people are beautiful, you know, <laughs> like I mean, uh, I'm not, but w- well, I'll just say, All I'll it- say is I'm not and Randall's married. So maybe
3: <laughs> tread up. <But> somebody <laughs> Dan, give it.
1: us the, uh, yeah, give us the straight I will, scoop. On. I will.
3: I, yes. A heterosexual cisgender male in my mid thirties. I can say like when I get out of long-term relationships, there is a new sense of like, okay, now I'm going to going back to the dating scene. Especially now with dating apps, you set limits of how low and how high you want to date. And that becomes age wise, internal- you mean? Right. Yeah. But <laughs> age, yeah. Sorry. Not height. Not like number, <laughs> height. Yeah. Not class. But yeah. that becomes a thing, though, honestly. I'm like, class am I going to be judged if I, but if I go on a date with someone who looks young or is younger, am I, you know, how is this going to be perceived? What is age appropriate for me? You know, these are issues that as I get... What power
1: dynamics are at play? A thing that is like... (laughs) Right, no, but that's... never discussed in this book.
3: (laughs) Right, but I'm just saying, personally, I know it's not addressed in the book, but that is something that does go, excuse me, through a guy's head when he's newly single and newly dating. And it is definitely a little bit of a struggle because you're not sure what is right. And especially with this, if he's been married for so long, you know, he's not going to really know what to do. And this is there is like an escapist almost like a fan fiction pornography of this like well if I was single man it would just it would just be
1: so like a what you just said is more interesting than any thought Mike Noonan has in the book and b I think it would be really really interesting to perceive Maddie as a character that Mike genuinely likes for something other than her body and then to struggle with what you're talking about like to be like I think I really like this girl she's xyz like our personalities are, are really like vibing in this way but she is too young for me i'm like what the fuck do i do yeah, and instead yeah. it's just like she's so hot what the fuck do i it's, do it's or the classic
3: rebound though too or, right it's or, the first woman okay. he's been with oh since his wife and that's the joke is like oh you're rebounding you're you think this woman's gonna solve all the problems that you have but everyone else around you is kind of like no this is not <laughs> this is not it but Sorry, go ahead. On, I didn't mean to
0: interrupt. Uh, I was just gonna say, like, or something. Even something really interesting would be to have a Tabby slash Joe character be okay with him lusting after a young person, which apparently Tabby is when he said, "I, you know, I, I'm on a diet." But, but wh- by the way, what a strange way to describe your sexuality, you know, being on a diet. Like that's what marriage is—is is restricting yourself, huh? Interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I think at-
1: Steve is Polly. I think we need to like. That would be... I mean, educate and, him on the tenets of polyamory. Well, and then,
0: like, see how see how Joe would feel about that or see, you know, s- see how even he would think that she might feel about that. Because, yeah, some people, that would be fine.
2: Mm-hmm. So I think based on everything we've said here, it is safe to say that Bag of Bones is easily Stephen King's horniest book, which says a lot because I feel like we spend a good chunk of episodes talking about how horny his books are. Um, so
1: personally horny.
2: Yeah, like...
1: And like, out uh, of control, as you said, like it, <laughs> you, you're reading and you're like, this book couldn't stop itself if it tried.
0: This right. book is 100% pound cake.
1: Yeah. Like it's 100%. like nothing yeah. but pound
2: cake. Yeah. And like my pound cake <laughs> section is almost like... Like most of the stuff that I would typically put in pound cake is like in misery because it, it's yeah. so gross, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I feel like those sections will be blended a little bit, but uh, cool. Let's talk a little bit as we wrap up the hook. Talk, I, you know, I wrote ghosts of the past and present. Uh, you know, you mentioned this being a Gothic, well you kind of talked about the idea of what Gothic horror is um, uh, a bit mal and the idea of like long suppressed secrets. And I think um, I was doing a little research myself and I think the idea of curses, Familial curses, things of that nature, bloodline curses. I think things like that sometimes can fall under the gothic banner. And that definitely is the case here. Uh, What we have is, um, you know, we have this mystery. And we talked a lot about the evolution and the reveals of these mysteries and how oddly structured this book is in revealing them. Uh, We know that there's something odd going around. We start to learn about these dead children. um, We start to notice some similarities in the names. uh, And all the while we get hints that, um, that there was... Uh, you know a drowned child that's definite help I'm help I'm drowned is one of the things that appears on the on the fridge and but we don't really find out what all of that really means until uh, Mike has a flashback. Um, where he witnesses Sarah Tidwell, who is, uh, you know, like a a blues singer who was traveling through Maine with uh, her family and some other collaborators in the early 1900s and was very popular in the area. But the men who lived in the area uh, uh, um, didn't like her for Many reasons, including uh racial, you know, racist ones, but then also I they didn't like how she made them horny, you know, and how she was uh confident in herself and you know would wear clothes that were more revealing than they liked.
1: Most of all, they didn't like that she walked on the street. That yeah, was that she walked to be on the street around for like the respectable townsfolk.
2: So one day on the street, they cornered her and um gang raped her and murdered her, and also her son who hadn't who happened to walk up uh, who was I believe ten years old, and they drowned him and. And so, what's kind of revealed is that Sarah's ghost has been possessed by something called the Outsider, which uh, no relation to the uh, book that came out a few years ago. Uh, not, not that I can see, at least. Um, and
0: uh, I think there
2: is a connection. I think there. Yeah, yeah, there is I a
0: connection. Like, I, that sounds I pretty is, related. It's the <laughs> same. It's the same. Yeah. It's the same idea. I don't know though, because
2: the the Outsider is uh, is like an actual creature like a shapeshifter. Like this can, seems more spiritual.
0: Like, I think they can be related. I I don't think you do King is pretty aware of King's dominion. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think you say something capital T capital O outsider mm-hmm. and then do a book about outsiders. I don't know. I think there's, there's different types related. too. Like I yeah, it, I do it too. definitely keep the a cona- book connected. to mind
1: and I think Yeah, I think it's, like, something that possesses another thing and, like, they could be distantly related to each other. There's just, like, things that are supernatural out there that possess other things. Yeah,
0: it's the expanded King universe. All right, all right,
2: I'll accept that.
0: You're outvoted.
2: I'm outvoted, I'll take it, I'll take the (laughs) L. Um, Okay, uh, but yeah, so her spirit has been possessed by this, um, you know, otherworldly being and is gaining revenge on... Uh, the the bloodlines that you know killed her child and her uh, by basically, possessing these people and uh, having them drown their children. Uh, there's some really horrific stories about children being drowned under pumps and, you know, in the water and things of that nature. A lot of it kind of really hits us boom, 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 boom in sort of the back third of the book. It all hits us pretty hard. But I guess what is our reaction to this storyline? Because uh, for I remember for me being very, very jarred by it when I was young, not only because it's incredibly graphic and, and deeply disturbing, but also, uh, you know, like we mentioned, this is a mystery that is is, is tea but not necessarily um, foreshadowed in the way you might think. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of red herrings in this book before we get to the actual meat of what it is that has cursed this town, which is uh, Sarah's spirit. So yeah, I guess like general thoughts, uh, reactions to this and um, how you think it was handled in this because it's touching on some really thorny racial issues as well.
1: It's interesting to me that you said that the outsider like I, I read it as The Outsider has been corrupting Sarah only recently. Okay. It is mostly Sarah's doing that these like children have been targeted by this curse. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and in some ways, I think it's actually one of King's like more successful attempts at encapsulating a righteous but out of control rage born of mm. trauma. And Mike says multiple times, and I, I was really liking that he said this that he understands and sympathizes with sarah even as she's like murdering these children he's like i mean yeah <laughs> like well that's um, why i think it happened to her yeah that's why i think and her
2: death is so horrific uh because you know it is about justifying and or not justifying but like you know finding that sympathy so
1: i mean it, it's it's sort of like the most um i don't know it's it's like reparations but on the level mm-hmm. of like the body and emotion and, and you can tell that king sort of recognizes that and he also more explicitly in other ways is trying to distance himself at, through mike from like the sort of casual bigotry that lives in these small towns like he really does not like that bill was about to use the n-word um, right and right. it's it's king sort of i think maybe just trying to show that progressive bone in his body that like maybe maybe at this <laughs> point some others have been like yeah i know <laughs> have been clamoring for I do think and I don't know if this should be saved for like Sarah's character section. I do think that the writing's treatment of her ultimately does undermine her, however. And, yeah, and I for agree. the whole book, except for the rape scene, um she's characterized as either animalistic or hypersexual or both. And it's the same thing where he he denigrates that view of black people explicitly when other people have it, and then the writing goes ahead and, and does it, just like the like objectification thing what we were talking about earlier with the let me do what I want. Like, You're gonna denounce this and then that's the only kind of writing we get about her. And mm-hmm. there could have been a way, I think, to correct that, to notice it. I'm almost surprised, again, that King doesn't follow through here with some self-awareness, that he doesn't recognize how Mike is thinking of her as this caricature until we see her death. And even then, when we do get the rape scene, she's largely, a symbol for for victimhood and she she undergoes like the most explicit evils of racism and we know her only as like a vaguely likable charismatic black woman who dares to laugh in the faces of her white rapists and murderers but unfortunately she's never deepened beyond that and so she can only be a symbol of like lewdness or of rage or of victimhood and that Mm -hmm. flattens her to a black archetype times three (laughs) that's just hitting hitting the three points and i wish i wish it had been better yeah
2: yeah Anna,
0: yeah, I would say that, uh, ditto what Melanie said, and also we never talk about like telling and not showing. H- he he seems to indicate that one one of the things that the you know gang rapists hate about her is that she has the respect of the town.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: We never see that, right? I agree, a hundred percent. That's only and like said we in a toss away comment. Is the scene where she is performing. And the townspeople are reacting in their animalistic way.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Like all they see when she's performing, like she talks about, he talks about how the men want to fuck her, mm-hmm. and the women are laughing in this, like, you know, very kind of like. I mean, music can move you to these to, to very primitive emotions, no doubt, right? But they're not appreciating her music apparently, you know. Yeah. Right? Like, there's I- not, and he he references. You know, he references how influential she is, which I remember confusing me at first when I first read it, because I was like, have I not heard of this person? <laughs> I, did, I, did <laughs> I, well, I did. I was yeah. the same. I was like, he's like, mixing with real bands yeah, here. Yeah, like, you know, and I, he also, none of, her sounds, none of her songs sound very good. Like, the, <laughs> the lyrics sure. he puts in her mouth are kind of terrible, mm-hmm. you know? And he, he does, I think, do an okay description. I mean, I actually found myself listening to Bessie Smith. I put Bessie Smith on when when I was listening to this. Mm. And I was also thinking about the dignity of black women, even black female performers of this time, like one of the things that makes them pretty great, like is the dignity they can bring to the stage. And she is not allowed to have that. And I just really wish I would have seen her interacting with townspeople in a way that that telegraphed her dignity and their dignity and how great it must have been because there's this whole leap of leap of imagination that this group of of you know southern you know musicians would wind up in rural Maine yeah for some reason (laughs) but to but you could almost imagine like if they had found this like you know kind of like uh space where people did treat them with respect and maybe even civil war veterans would have some respect for them I don't know rather than rape them yeah um
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It would be really
0: cool, and you would want to stay there.
2: Yeah, I agree. Like, even in this scene when we go to the carnival, um, like him and Kyra go to the carnival, which I think is a really wonderful, beautifully written scene. Um, And one of the things I like about it is that. Sarah the version of Sarah that he sees there is not the version that really existed because there is something malevolent about her is this, this is Sarah as possessed by the outsider because she keeps leering and smiling really big like in eerie ways at her at Kyra and Kyra. I don't know if we know that she's
1: possessed yeah. by the, outsider I, the way
2: I read yeah. it um, the way I read it in that was that she, Sarah also was existing like th- that was like the malevolent spirit that was playing on stage for Mike and Kyra. Um, that was at least how I read it, because there was the way King described her and the way Kyra reacted to her. Just read to me is that there was something dark and malevolent about it.
1: Yeah. But I, I think I you think... can interpret that as either the outsider or just like this very rageful ghost. Yeah, I didn't
0: sure. see her yeah. as outsider at that point, but I did see her. I mean, she's self aware there. Yeah. Right? yeah, like she well, is performing. She exists in the same same time warp as Kyra and Mike at that point, and no one else does. Yeah, and, and, and she, I
3: think she also it's you know, she knows how to put on a show. She's an entertainer. So she can see that she's whipping these people into a frenzy and in a way she can see that, okay, look, I have this crowd in the palm of my hands and I'm going to like titillate them. I'm going to grind. But it it goes also like get out, kind of get into this of like the exploitation of black bodies, right? So like the people, the townsfolk, they like her, but they like her for her voice or they like her for her body, but they don't really care about her as a person, right? Mm. And I think what was cool too is that the, Yeah, the Civil War veterans. And it brings up the point that, like, yeah, not all people fighting for the Union army were fighting to end slavery. In fact, very few. That wasn't the goal for them. So I thought that was an interesting perspective that you don't hear as Union soldiers basically being like, yeah, I have no problem with slavery. Right. And that's King kind of calling out these people that think just because you're from the north, that doesn't mean that you're not guilty for what's going on either. Right. You still have blood on your hands. Mm -hmm. It's something that you don't see a lot in books. Uh Um, Oh, go ahead.
0: No, I was going to say that's very true. And there is actually a really cool project that's happening in the Northeast um, that they're giving tours of the homes and, you know, uh, residents of formerly enslaved people like in Connecticut and I think New Hampshire. Just as a by the by, like there are people trying to rectify this blank space in Northeast memory about where they were during the Civil War. And when I said there be Civil War people that might have respected her, I just think, yes, I totally agree. Racist fought. On the side of the north, <laughs> yeah but it's just some kind of respect for her like from mm-hmm. somebody yeah you know i mean we're getting yeah. into like
1: i do think it's it's like very realistic to just convey the townspeople like not caring about her as a person and like yeah. only but kind of being like yeah this like lewd except she, he
0: tells us that right. they respected her
1: well right i mean now we're kind of muddling there's the performance in the dream and like we don't really know to me it's like how the writing treats her and like in that performance scene it's like referencing how her teeth are like yellow and animal-like and how she she is being body in a way that is like malevolent and threatening she's a threatening sexual animalistic force like the writing is very much perpetuating on its own terms like these very outdated stereotypes Mm -hmm. and like and it's it's hard to be a white writer who is trying to portray a righteously angry black ghost that is murdering children right like i think that's like a heart it's a tall ask of mr king who has like (laughs) a very dappled history with dealing with non-white people of any of any right, kind. Right.
0: I just think we get to ask for more, you know. And I agree oh, totally. totally about the scene at the carnival. I'm just saying cuz he does tell us a few times that the pro- the reason she gets gang raped is not just because she's she's you know flouncing about on the street. It's because she the townspeople she ha- she interacts with the townspeople mm-hmm. as equals.
2: Yeah, it was the yeah
0: they like her, <laughs> which is hard to believe. Number one, like I mean, if he's going to tell us that, that's that's ahistorical, for sure, right? But at least give us some hint that that has happened rather than just like, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's that's definitely
3: the, <laughs> of the time it came out. That probably respect would not be the word right we wouldn't get that nuance now we'd be like no that's not respect yeah you right know, which is why we needed to see it
2: yeah right and yeah. It, but
3: i, I just in, the, in terms of that sequence though it, i did really enjoy that though because i thought that was one of the more thrilling passages yeah you know i love a good fever dream and it, you almost could hear like the jumanji drums in the background of, like <laughs> oh it's getting like something there's danger getting closer and i like that it was a shared dream so like i didn't necessarily take her as malevolent per se but later on knowing that she does have this possession with the outsider and also she's righteous you know she has the right to be mad at these people and their descendants so i think it all just kind of came together i don't think you're supposed to take or at least my interpretation was not like not one thing was clear about that dream because it was a dream so it doesn't always logically work out um and i think just the intensity and the fear and them running through the fun house after was really It just that was the part that i was like okay this book finally like picking up <laughs>
2: Yeah, and I guess hearing your perspectives about the outsider, I think that that's like I don't know, I just want to clarify like it is I I now the the way you guys have phrased it to me, I feel like that wrinkle in the in the ghost story was sort of a way to activate Sarah outside of the grave as a physical yeah. entity, as, like, that thing that was wrestling with yeah, Joe and, like, exactly. coming. Yeah, like, I guess I didn't really think about it in that regard. So I think that's actually a really cool way to look at it. And, like, and then it doesn't diminish the rage that she feels that is in some many ways justified. And so... um yeah, I think it's I think it's an interesting metaphor for, you know, the Mike talks a lot about the cables that run beneath the town. Right. That he's unaware of, but that connect everyone. And I feel and he talked in interviews about the idea of uh, the main the actual uh, main people knowing where the bodies are buried and knowing. And I think by that it's it's, you know, very literal, but also it represents sort of the innate biases and the innate um, uh Uh, wounds and scars in history that exist in these communities. I mean, I'm from Michigan, suburban Michigan, and... I mean, I grew up hearing people say the N word and stuff, too, even though a lot of people, you know, claim to not be racist. It's like these things persevere sort of in when people think they're safe, you know, when they can when they can say the N word around certain people, but they can't say it around Mike, you know what I mean? And uh, and I've noticed that when I would hear it when I was young, it was always in places, you know, it was with, um, you know, my parents like being at my friend's house and the parents having friends over and people discussing and that stuff kind of happening casually. And uh, and so I guess it worked for me in that regard of, um, you know, that there is this sort of uh, darkness that permeates communities beneath the surface that, um, you know, when you go get a burger, when you go to the general store and you talk to these people, uh, you know, you would never know or never guess that that's sort of the uh, the lingering sentiments in this town um, are still very much rooted in, you know, past biases and things of that nature. It's almost so. like there's things hidden below the depths. Yeah. There's a bag of bones under there. Bags of bones everywhere. Hey, gang, this marks the end of the first part of our two-part bag of bones discussion. Part two will drop in the middle of next week, and will include a deeper dissection of the characters, a detour into the book's scariest sequences, and of course, that delicious pound cake. See you then.
1: I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot. And
3: my but you know you want somebody to treat you good
2: This is the end of our
1: show. For now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other
2: bloody disgusting podcasts such as Creepy, Horror
1: Queers, The boo crew. SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.